Hello and welcome to this special bonus episode of Creaky Chair Film Podcast. My name is Michael Brooks and this episode we're bringing you uh, an in-depth interview with the documentary filmmaker Adam Curtis. Uh, I recorded the interview with Adam back in early February uh, ahead of the release on BBC iPlayer of his new long-form series of films, Can't Get You Out of My Head, An Emotional History of the Modern World. I talked about the films with Bill and Sam towards the end of episode four, and as I said then, and, and as I say to Adam in the interview, I think they are tremendous uh, and well worth anyone's time if you should want to try and understand the chaotic and confusing times that we are living through. I've been a fan of Adam Curtis's work for a great many years now. I rank him as one of the finest filmmakers working in his field today. He is a, a rare a rare thing of, of having a completely unique and distinctive style. Uh, and this new series is, is well up there with his finest work, The Century of the Self, Power Nightmares, Bitter Lake, uh, if not being at his, his magnum opus and uh, his finest work. So it was a great privilege to have the opportunity to chat with Adam. I tried to ask him a range of questions about the characters that feature in the series and the stories that he, he explores. Uh, I asked him about how he developed his, his trademark style, his, his taste in music and how he uses the archive and research. Uh, as well as that, I put to him you know, some of the conspiratorial criticism that uh, critics, I would say, lazily try and tarnish him with. Uh, and as you'll hear, he robustly pushes back on, on that line of criticism. So I thoroughly enjoyed chatting with Adam, and I really hope you enjoy listening to it as well. just wanted to say, uh, yeah, I've absolutely loved your work since I first came across it when I was at university. I think I was it was the um, uh, All Watched Over series, I think was the first oh, time yeah. I stumbled on. And yeah, it's, you know, your work has, has played no small part really in, in sort of shaping how I've come to sort of see and understand the world. So it's a real honour to talk with you. Thank you. So I just wanted to start by asking, so how has your, your time in and out of lockdown been over the last year? Had you, had you always been working towards this kind of release date or, or were you able to expedite your progress due to all the spare time? No, I mean, I hadn't actually said, oh, this, we must put this out in February. What I did know is that I wanted them to be out after the American elections because I, one of the things I really wanted to say in these films is that the thing that really shocked me about the last four years is that although there was great hysteria in America and in Britain over Brexit and Trump, if you actually pulled back and looked at what happened, what was actually happening, nothing really changed in terms of the structure of power and things like the inequalities I mean, I think, you know, the most significant thing was Black Lives Matter. But other than that, nothing really changed. Nothing, you know, the, 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 there was great fury and hysteria and a sense that, a sort of sense that there was this continual dynamic thing. But actually, it was a frozen moment. And I wanted to put the films out after that so I could turn around and say, look, it didn't really change maybe the hysteria was part of the new system of power that is beginning to sort of hold this time in a sort of frozen in its frozen grip and i mean that the um the broad hypothesis of the series um as you say that the films themselves are very are very different but the broad hypothesis is uh, one that you know to my mind you you were exploring through the prism of say in bitter lake uh, Afghanistan and through, you know predominantly but not exclusively through uh, the Soviet Union in hypernormalization. I wonder what drew you to the concept of in approaching these films widening the scope of that hypothesis of you know living in a 
chaotic times in which nothing ever seems to change and powers losing their their ability to to provide coherent sense of it what what made you what drew you to the idea of exploring that hypothesis wider through all these multifarious stories well i just thought after after hypernormalization and then as i lived through the what you, the trump brexit time is i became quite shocked by how extraordinary that disconnect had got become that, that everyone thought that things were change in some way or another because of Trump and because of Brexit, whether you were on the side of Trump or whether you hated him or not, you felt that. But then actually nothing did. So I I decided that that rather in the past, I've tended to follow one idea or one particular set of ideas and see how it played out as it got mixed or they got mixed up with power and all sorts of things like that. What I've decided to do in this one is that to try and trace all kinds of different routes of how we led to now. To actually, what I said, you know, it's a history of the modern world. It's it's an attempt to look at all the different things that, say, when do I start? About 70 years ago. That at that time seemed completely and utterly separate. You know, the, the one on the one hand, you had a growing melancholy in this country about the loss of empire and, and, and a sort of an emergent anger amongst the white working class. At the same time, you were beginning to develop artificial intelligence over in the laboratories in America, whilst at the same time, money was beginning to rise up as this powerful force that would replace the old ideologies of of, of the past. I wanted to trace how all of those, I suppose like little rivers, were flowing towards this present sort of uncertainty of now, let's put it like that, and how they joined up in really strange ways often through the the actions and the emotions and the, the, the feelings of particular characters that I was following. That's, that's what I decided to do. Let's be a bit more comprehensive in order to show what are the real roots of now and, and the root, roots of that thing, that, that sense that people want change and they want it because everyone feels uncertain and anxious about the future. But somehow nothing actually ever does change. It's this really strange thing. And I wanted to, you couldn't explain it just through one set of ideas. You've got to explain it by all the different things that, I mean, I haven't explained everything, but I chose to show how all the different things that flow to that happened. Yeah. So one of the things, obviously, that typifies your work, and it's just brought brought to mind just because I mentioned it at the start, but I remember, I think, my favourite of your of your films, above all the of all of them, I, I like them all, but above above all, I think my favourite that stands out is the third episode of um, of the uh, All Watched Over series, where it just seems like there is so much, there are so many plates spinning in the air and so many ideas, and it seems like such an audacious uh, kind of uh, experiment, really. And I remember just thinking, how on earth are you going to tie all of this, all these in, and make and draw some sort of conclusion? And that's why I say I'm, I'm so looking forward to. To see in the final two to, to sort of work out how you do it. I wonder with because obviously you know you're you're working now eight hours over six films. There's such a you know freedom there in, in being able to explore as much as you have been able to. Did you? But it feels like the pace of it and the, as I say the plate spinning in the air. It feels like there's as much if not more than any of your previous work. So did you find that? You know how did you find working in this broader? Well, it, it's fun. It's funny you mentioned that. But I've always rather liked that last film. Um, in it all washed over uh, because I was trying to experiment there. You're right. Um, it was partly because having started writing a blog, I had noticed that people, when you when you're talking to people online, they have a completely different sensibility than when they're watching traditional television programs. It's just somehow they may be sitting in exactly the same way, that, but they they just bring a different and more open 
sensibility. They're more open to complexity and oddness because they know it from themselves in the way they experience the internet. Yeah, they're always jumping. You know it in yourself. You're always jumping around, and it's sort of a new modern kind of realism. It's how people experience the world, and therefore, if you do that, they somehow I don't know. Even though you're making these enormous jumps and they somehow feel it more satisfying. I can't explain it any more than that. And it somehow feels more real to them than a neatly joined up television program. Of course, then at the end, yes, you do. You have to, and at various points, like in the ones you've seen in this series, I'm beginning to pull things together. I'm saying, you know, at that point, Jiang Ching and this other woman were like this. You have to make people feel safe that you're you're in a world that you're going somewhere. But at the same time, you have to give them, you, you allow them permission to just, relax and let go loose with it and every now and then put in a fact that has no relationship to any of it all because it's a bit like life you know i will suddenly say that a woman called ethel bull whose father was george bull who invented boolean logic which is behind all the computers she inherited a a, a manuscript called the voynich manuscript that even to this day no one has yet been able to translate the strange language in it and then you never hear about it again for the rest of the series because i just like things like that it's it's just a fascinating fact but i do think it's I mean, you're right. That that film I made at the end of All Watch Machines Loving Grace, then I went and did Bitter Lake, which again was an experiment in that, of just letting people go into this world and explore it at their own pace. And it became more like publishing a book because people could bookmark mm. iPlayer. That's what I discovered very early on. And then again with hypernormalization and now with this, I'm just exploring getting a more bigger and more open world that you can come into. You feel safe that I'm going to actually tell you at points, I will stop and say, this is what that means, and that's what this means. And then we'll carry on into the complexity of it all. And yeah, I put it together. At the, end, the last episode in the series is a big two-hour episode where I pull everything, well, not everything, because you can't, in life, you can't pull everything together. But I pull what I've said together and say what, why I think we are in this state of stasis. And at the very end, I offer the three options that I think are where we could choose to go in the future. Because I think that's what, as a journalist, I should do. I don't tell you what they should be, but I could tell you where the, the directions that possibly we might be going. So, yeah, yeah. why not? Because, to, to be honest, every age has its own fe- realism, a, a feeling of what, when people write down or make films to the audience, feels real. And I worked out very early on that increasingly that kind of complexity feels real to people that they wouldn't have, I don't know, in the year 1999, because their experience is just like yours and mine. It's now much more fragmentary online. And if they, if you recognise that, if you recognise that people feel that that is more real, then it gives you great freedom to explore. It really does. And that's what I've been doing online. And the series opens with a, a sort of a, quite an arresting quote from the late David Graeber. Um, and it put me in mind of, and I, I don't know whether you're familiar with, with his work also, but whether you took inspiration from the, the theorist Mark Fisher. Oh, I, I knew Mark. We were sort of, we sort of, we got to that funny stage very early on. He, when he started writing about how culture is haunting us, he'd noticed that I'd been saying that in my blog. And he, he emailed me and we had this, for four hours, we talked in a cafe outside Liverpool Street Station. And it was absolutely fascinating. We found we'd, we were fascinated by the same thing. It's just how much we were haunted by this, how the society is haunted by the past culture. Yeah. He's great. Yeah, no, um, that's really interesting. I mean, what, what drew me to, to mind watching your films is particularly his argument that 
you know, so at the libidinal level, there may not actually be that much desire for change or to move beyond capitalism. I know. I know. Isn't it interesting that? It, it, it is fascinating, this thing. I remember one, I was on stage once with having to talk about all this sort of stuff. And I think it was with him, actually, in Berlin. We, he and I did a thing on stage together. And I was just getting a bit pissed off with all the, 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 the sort of, um, how would I describe them? They were being typically boringly left-wing and wanting to talk about revolution. And I just said, do you really want a revolution? Do you know what it would be like? Do you know that actually a lot of you would actually have to give up some of the entitlement and the thing as you as nice middle class people have? Do you really want that? Or do, do you want the, the ground to shift under you like an earthquake? Do you really want that? Or do you just want the banks to be a little bit nicer to you and a little bit more cuddly? And there was silence in the room. And I saw Mark and I saw Mark nodding as well. You know, he he thought the same as I did. That, that, that one of the things one's got to deal with in this world, which I think the left hasn't really faced up to yet, is that it would, if it really wanted to change things, it, a lot, they would have to give up a lot of their privileges in the interests of actually helping a lot of people who are living really not very nice lives and are not benefiting from the systems of power. Uh, I think that's a really a thing the left has never, ever faced up to. It. And in the first, the second film of this series, uh, I take this character called Michael X, who is not a very nice man. He was a gangster and, and a thug, but he also became a revolutionary. And he is a real truth teller about Britain because he, he, he became a heroic figure for the left in the mid-60s. And then he's sent into prison for being racist, which was pretty weird. He comes out 18 months later and finds that all the people who were his white supporters have suddenly become hippies and don't want to know him again. I've got into sort of a, a sort of consumer lifestyle hippie he was pretty scathing about that. that. You know, really what what he was seeing was people who dressed up as radicals, danced to black music, but really underneath, maybe they were the children of the people who ran the empire and they wanted to carry on doing it, but they were just going to do it dressed up in this, in inverted commas, radical way. And I think he was, I like him as a character because he's a, you know, he was obviously a very nice man, but he has this sort of dry, wry understanding of English white radicalism, which again, I go back to my point that I was on stage with Mark, is, is that, do you really want a revolution? Uh, you know, do you really want to change things that radically? You'd have to give up quite a lot if you did. That's not to say it's not a good thing, and maybe it would be good to give up some of those in that entitlement and that privileges. But I think the, the, the radical middle class in this country still has a lot of its roots in that sort of entitlement that comes out of the empire. It's as haunted by the empire as is the white working class, is my point. Um, it was interesting in, uh, to see you tackle in the third episode, I think it is, the uh, climate change, which I, you, know, you, you bring in to an extent that I don't think you, you have quite so much in your films before. Um, no. And I wonder whether and to what extent you think that climate change threatens the twin forces of individualism and capitalism. Previously, I've never really tackled climate change because I thought, Plenty of people were talking about climate change. But historically, what I began to notice, I got more interested in trying to analyse the reactions to climate change by those who want to do something about it. And I began to notice that ever since really the early 1990s, the climate change movement had become possessed by a very narrow technocratic solution, which was to say, oh, no, all we need to do is is hold the world's temperature stable and they were 
I, I, right from that meeting they had in Rio, I think in 1992, they, they kept on coming out and saying, no, we're now going to hold it down by two degrees. And just I just thought to myself, this is ignoring power. And, and also, it's ignoring the fact that to actually change things radically, you're going to have to get lots of people on your side who aren't nat your natural allies. And the way you do that is not by saying, oh, we're going to make it better in the future. What you do is you say, no, we're going to change the structure of power in the world now, which on the one hand will make your life immediately better. But in the process of doing it, we will also change the whole structure of the society in such a way that we don't pump it, start pumping out things that, 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 that are going to screw the world in the future. You put the two together, but they weren't doing it. And, and really what I was trying to do in that third episode was show how things like coal, which is seen as a really bad force, have a really complex history because coal, whilst at the same time being one of the great agents of, of climate change, was also one of the roots of collective power of the working class, out of which has come socialism, all ideas that you can actually confront and take on privileged power, that it played an ambiguous role. Because throughout these films, what I'm trying to show you is that changing the world is difficult because the roots of what, of, of, of what you want to do often has its roots in things that are not quite what you like. It, it's complicated. And, and, and history plays a great big role in this. And I've always thought that a lot of the technocratic solutions that are offered to people, things like climate change, try and abstract themselves from the past. It's as if the past didn't exist. They're sort of, it's a modernist approach to, to, to politics. If you want to change the world, you've got to understand how history haunts you. You know, the empire haunts us. It's inside our heads. It's inside the heads of people who voted for Brexit. You've got to deal with that. You've got to confront that. And the same is true of climate change. It's, you know, it's, it's haunted by the history of coal and oil and both the bad things and the good things that coal brought, which was, which is that idea of, the collective power of the working class. And somehow what I was trying to point out in these films is in that film is you've got to actually go back and look at the history and how it haunts you if you want to change the climate in the future. You really have to. And I think actually a lot of the climate change movement are now realizing that. The Green New Deal is saying exactly the same thing, is we link it to a changing the structure of power now in society. That's what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is is saying and I think that's absolutely right yeah I mean I was going to bring that up actually in terms of you know you, you argue that there's a paucity of of real sort of alternative visions of the future but could you not also argue that in recent years we have we have seen relatively different visions come actually quite close to power I'm talking you know sort of Jeremy Corbyn's Labour and Bernie Sanders in America both with obvious flaws but nonetheless at least willing to embrace and explore ideas like UBI, the Green New Deal, uh, to name just two. I'm, I'm not looking to draw you out on your views on them specifically, but I wonder whether you had any reflections on the way in which the intense sort of oppositional forces exerted by the elites on movements like that mean that even if, you know, it doesn't matter so much that, that if there aren't these alternative visions, if the establishment who by and large don't want the change are quite comfortable, as you say, uh, can wield such power and influence to subvert and undermine them. I don't think you can go on saying it's the establishment stopping us. You've, you know, you just can't. Uh, you've also, I mean, of course that's true, but, but, but you've also got to accept the fact that, that, that what has been a source of all failure from the Occupy movement through Trump, who failed, is the fact that what you're not giving people 
is the you're not giving a powerful enough idea of an alternative kind of future, which is powerful enough to get the people who voted for Trump, who you need on you and who voted for Brexit, who you need on your side if you're going to do that. You can't because otherwise you fail, which you did. You know, Corbyn failed. Bernie Sanders failed. I mean, Bernie Sanders got very close because actually, if you look at him during the 2016 primary campaign, he was saying many of the things that Donald Trump was saying, almost word for word. And it's very interesting. I still think that he might have won, actually, in, in that in that moment. And it's a terrible thing that the left got stitched him up and got rid of him. Uh, sorry, the Democrat, the centrist Democrats got rid of him because he. This is the, this is the terrible thing is that which the left just cannot face up to. Actually, no, they do face. I've seen I've seen people say this. A lot of what Trump was saying in 2016 was exactly the same as what Bernie Sanders was saying. That why why have they shipped this these, these factories off to China, and why are people living in derelict towns addicted to opioids with no sense of a future. Why are we fighting these wars in places like Afghanistan, killing thousands of innocent people, yet not making the world safer? Why is there so much corruption in the lobbying in, in Washington? Why? These are really important, powerful questions, um, and, they, and to which many people respond. Remember that many of the people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 were the same people who voted for Barack Obama. This thing is knocking at the door. Yeah, it really is. And someone's going to get a hold of it. And <laughs> unless the left really comes up with something bigger that's going to grab those people and imaginatively, then some very nasty people are going to get hold of that power, much nastier than Donald Trump. Because to be honest, Donald Trump was, was a pantomime figure who really never expected to get power. And when he got into power, as I point out in the last film, didn't actually do anything. I mean, he did some really nasty things with, with Iran. But domestically, apart from reducing taxes for very rich people which is what republicans tend to do he didn't do anything else he didn't build a wall he didn't get rid of the, he didn't drain the swamp and he didn't bring the factories back well he failed completely as did corbyn as did as did occupy so unless they get their act together some really nasty people are going to turn up next because look at the voting pattern in the election in in 2020 despite a total failure to manage the pandemic he's still got a lot of people to vote for him it's, you know, take note of that. Probably would have won a second term without without the pandemic, you could argue. Yes, possibly you could argue. So I, really what I'm saying is, yes, you're right, there have been attempts, but they haven't yeah. achieved it. You know, and again, you know, you've got to get those, you've got to go and talk to, I mean, to be honest, you've got to go and talk to people who you're frightened of and if, if you really want to change things. And at the moment, the left are failing to do that. One of the characters that you bring up uh, is not in the, I think it must be in the, the final two, but I know that you bring him up in the series is Dominic Cummings. Um, and I'm just struck actually watching the um, yeah, the story of uh, Zhang Qing unfold. Just the, kind of, <laughs> some of the similarities between, between the two, um, the fact that they were both courted and then rejected by the establishment and seemingly driven by a sort of crusading sense of disdain for those that, that well, certainly Cummings purported to serve. I mean, I find it quite funny, don't, I don't know about you, but for all his dreams of creating a British DARPA and, uh, you know, transforming Whitehall through complexity theory, that he was his downfall was basically due to the fact that his, the Prime Minister's fiance didn't really like him very much. Um, do you think his story, to me, feels very incomplete? Do you think that you'll be perhaps returning to him again in the future? Well, no, I mean, I see him as, again, one of these... I mean, he... 
to, to be fair to Dominic Cummings, I was I got interested in him because I read his blog quite a lot a long time ago, um, and he could see this anger grow, growing up. He comes from the northeast, and he could see it. I think he saw it in the wave of those big factory closures that happened after the 1998 economic crisis, uh, global economic crisis up in the northeast. He saw it. You know, I had time for him because actually compared to the other politicians around, he actually had some ideas. I think his ideas were completely bonkers because in that last film, I deal with the rise of complexity theory in the early 90s because I think it's the root of this idea which has become one of the great mythologies of our time, which is that somehow through data and through computers, you can know more about reality than human beings do, that, that somehow they can see another truth. Uh, I think it's completely wrong because fundamentally there is a flaw in that attitude. It, it accepts the system as it is. It just says, if we can gather enough data about the system, the machines can see the underlying patterns, the underlying truth. That's what complexity theory says. What it gives up on is the, the very idea of actually, it gives up, sorry, it accepts the idea that the system just is what it is. It never asks the question, which is, who designed the system? And in whose interest is that system designed? It cannot do it. And I just think that's bonkers. So I think he was bound to fail, to be honest. But I think but I think he's a very interesting person because he saw it and he saw that anger. What he didn't realise yeah. is the fact that by raising that anger up, it would raise up ghosts from the past which to technocrats like him, are, they, just don't, they just don't see them. But the, he, he raised them up and they came back. I don't really think they're from the Empire. They're from, in, in the fifth film, I, talk, I try and do, I jump back to that time after the First World War when the Empire was really falling apart and a sort of magical, strange, nostalgic vision of England it was invented, which then gets reaffirmed in the Second World War and then comes up through Nigel Farage. Uh, I think, to be honest... Cummings got haunted by a strange, weird version of England's past that a technocrat like him couldn't really deal with. That's my interpretation of him. I mean, many other people have lots of different interpretations. Whenever I, uh, whenever I watch your films for the first time, anyway, I, I always end up with a reading list of about seven or eight books that I then think, my goodness, I'm going to have to read these. I just wanted to ask about your, you understand a little bit more about your research process and whether or, whether or not you know, before you start going through the archives and trying to find interesting and, and wild footage, whether you have to immerse yourself in loads and loads of reading? Um, no, what do I tend to do? I mean, basically, because I'm a journalist, I tend to find stories that I like. That's really what I start with. Um, and I go and find, in this case, stories of all sorts of characters. I mean, you know, that's that's how I really start. And I found stories of characters that I rather liked. It was sort of ambiguous, like Zhang Cheng. You know, you, you could see why why she was angry, but then she became a sort of vengeful person herself, or Michael X, gangster, but a sort of truth teller at the same time about Britain. I disliked all that. But then I sort of start thinking about what it all means, and, and all the way through the last three or four years, I've just had this thing about, well, why there's this sort of strange frozenness about our time, yet there's a hysteria. That's really what was the back of my head. And then I just start looking at lots of archive films, and at the same time, finding other stories. And it sort of comes out of that. I never, ever have a big theory. I know that I'm I know that I'm beginning to follow ideas. And one of the things I'm interested in is the way the past haunted both people and countries. And, and, and in a way, how power never goes away. It sort of mutates in people's heads and comes out in other ways. So, you know, the, the tragedy of people like Michael X and... 
Jiangqing is that they they believe that they can change the world by getting rid of bad things from the past in other people's heads. They've never really come to confront the fact that maybe they've got some bad shit in their own heads from the past. And then I, th at that point, I then begin to say, okay, maybe this is what it's all about. It's about an, an, uh, how the past haunts you in different ways and how those who want to create change have never really confronted that. And in a way, I, then I begin to get a bit bigger and I think, oh, okay, maybe it is about this thing that I've always thought was sort of the problem at the heart of modernism, is that it thought it could live in a world without free of the past. You know, that starting from the end of the First World War, you just, and again, after the Second World War, we can just, it's almost like get rid of the past. No, you can't. It's, 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 it's in people's heads. At which point I realise, okay, I'm dealing with the world of individualism. We've got to look at what's inside people's heads. And I then start looking at footage in all sorts of ways like that. And I then let myself go. I've sort of got a vague idea at that point and a characters. And then I just go and look at lots of footage in all sorts of ways with that vague idea in my mind. But I don't look literally for, for sorry. I mean, some of the footage, Jane Ching or Michael X, I'm looking for that footage. But I'm also letting my, my, or my, pit, my eyes wander over all kinds of stuff. Just anything that grabs me. Yeah. And you've you've developed such a, a distinctive and unique style, visual style. And it's it's interesting that you you know, just a couple of interview a couple of uh, documentaries from last year or the last couple of years, the Jeremy Della documentary that you made about Acid House, I thought uh, I don't know whether you saw that, it was on the BBC and No, I know well I know Jeremy well. Uh, yeah, no, he showed me that. I liked it very much. I thought Yeah, no, it was very good. Yeah, I don't think I don't think he copies me. No, but you can see there was you know the little I don't know maybe not, but yeah, you know, small little influences that crop in, and and as well with the the Once Upon a Time in Iraq documentary that was really good from last year. Um, I wonder. It's interesting looking back as I as I did uh, at the weekend at just how fully formed that sort of visual style and aesthetic was with your earlier stuff like Pandora's Box and The Living Dead in the early nineties. Although they were obviously quite a lot more formal. Did you did you always have a clear idea stylistically of, of what you wanted to achieve, or was it more a case of trial and error and just experimenting and throwing things out? It's pure instinct. I mean, just literally. It's. I mean, I'm. Look, if you actually had to put me into a historical context, I am very much a creature of my time. I often talk about this with Robert, who runs Massive Attack. Is that we were doing the same thing at pretty much the same time. We were going back and sample. In his case, sampling in my case, just finding old stuff, and reworking it from the early 90s onwards. And a lot of people were doing this, we're, you know. And if you, really what we're charting is the collapse of confidence of a, of a, of a modern project, really. That's what Pandora's Box was doing. Yeah. And, and in a way, that's the story of our age. It, it's, it's the loss of confidence of a class that thought it could use technical methods and sort of abstract itself from the past in order to, to, to create a more easily manageable world. They weren't utopians. And, and part of that is people like me and Robert going back and reworking the past and trying to work out why, what, what went wrong with it all, yeah? But out of that came an aesthetic. Yeah. You're right. It's, it's, it's a sort of... But, but, but to be honest, it's an instinctive one. I, didn't, I never thought it out. And often it comes about because I, as a journalist... I wanted to tell stories about things that are quite abstract. So in Pandora's Box, for example, I wanted to do a, f a funny film about, about economics. I wanted to show how politics 
had become taken over by economics um, in the in the 80s, which I think is, it really did, and how economics became this dominant thing to which politicians bowed down. When I was in the editing process, I was almost in tears a lot of the time because I could find nothing to illustrate it with. I remember it very vividly years ago. And it was when I was just starting out in television, I thought I was going to get sacked. And I probably would have got sacked. You know, they'd given me this money. And and out of that desperation, I just started raiding the BBC archive. Yeah. You know, I remember in that film, I even had talking squirrels at one point. They're still there. Seriously, because because it, I had no other way of illustrating an abstract thing. And really, a lot of it was born out of that necessity. If you're going to, to illustrate power in the modern world has no real visual intrinsic visual quality it's not full of strong men and Whitwell mostly strong men in the past who you know live a a flamboyant lifestyle it's full of people who dress down don't look very powerful who get their power through computers finance modern management systems none of which are visual yeah economics not visual so I had to find a language to try and talk about that so a lot of that style that you talk about, it is also of its age, like with Robert in Massive Attack, but it's also born out of necessity. You know, I've just got to slap something together in order to talk over it. No, really, it is like that. And 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 I began to find that I could do it and make it quite funny and create a mood. That's all. And then people like me overanalyze it. <laughs> no, I mean, you know. I mean, to be honest, I am the last person to ask about the, whether it's an aesthetic or not. You never know at the yeah. time. I mean, I can give you the rational reasons is that, you know, at four o'clock in the morning, desperate to finish that film because it had to go off to, to be finished the, the next day, I would be cutting in pictures of talking squirrels because I just had nothing else. But historically, I might be part of something bigger and people like you can tell me. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not offended if you do, because I'm the last person to know. Maybe more people would be interested in economics documentaries if they had more talking squirrels in them. <laughs> well, I mean, the trouble is what you do is you, you tend to end up, which is the real problem aesthetic of our time, is men and women reporters, um, shots of them sitting in cafes or offices gazing at their laptop screens. That's what a lot of documentaries get, how they get around that problem. And it's, incredi- it's incredibly boring. <laughs> But you can see, but you can see why they have yes. to do it. Yeah, I wanted to just. They haven't got a talking squirrel. Go no. on. <laughs> I wanted to just very briefly address uh, just some of the, the uh, some of the criticism that your work does draw from people, and I mean just you know quite humorous parodies. Like I'm sure you've seen the the short uh, "Loving Trap" parody on YouTube, which is uh, which is very funny. No, I love that. It's it's really funny because it's accurate. It's clever. And actually, and also, it made me reflect on myself, which is good. You know, it, I thought, why is that good? Oh, it's the voice. Yeah, yeah, okay, I can see the voice. It, it made me think. So, no, it's really good. I mean, the crap ones I don't like. Well, I don't dislike them. I just think they're crap. But the, that one was really good. But do, do you sometimes worry, um, sort of particularly especially now with what appears to be a sort of heightened sensitivity about you know, people making connections and drawing parallels and then presenting them as objective truth. Do you sometimes worry that by talking about conspiracies, real and fake, that you that you risk being dismissed as being part of the conspiratorial problem, if you see what I mean? Well, okay, let's be clear about this. I have, first thing, I have never in any of my films put forward a conspiracy theory, ever. That I, that I have never done that. But there is something quite interesting here. 
Over the last 20 years, when the mainstream left and the mainstream right in politics have essentially fused together, so there's very little difference between them, what has happened is that, that out of that has emerged a very strong consensus, mainstream consensus, which covers both what used to be left and right now. In the face of that, the, the word conspiracy theory has, has transformed itself into a shorthand to describe anyone who challenges that that mainstream consensus. It's just yeah. changed its language. And I'll give you a couple of examples. At the, at the height of the, the, the um, fear, the terrorist fear, after the 9-11, well, 2003, 2004, I made a series called The Power of Nightmares, which said very clearly, it said, there is a serious terrorist, Islamist, Islamist terrorist threat. But the idea that we are faced with a a global international network of hidden cells across the world controlled from the center by bin Laden in a cave in Afghanistan is just not true. And the idea that, that uh, Al-Qaeda are going to float a boat uh, up the Thames with an atomic bomb on it and blow it up is a, is, a, is a fear thing that has run out of control. And many journalists, including mainstream serious journalists and terror experts, were running with it and it had run out of control. I said that. It was as if the roof dropped in. Right. I would now argue that 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 people like me saying that, and I wasn't alone. There were other people set questioning that, have been proved completely completely accurate. And actually, those people who attacked people like me over that have turned out to be the real conspiracy theorists because they were the people who went around saying that there were weapons of mass destruction in the deserts of Iraq, and the very fact that you couldn't find them proved that they must exist. Those were the conspiracy theorists. I was not. Another example is um, when I did uh, Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace. That I made that at the time of that massive journalistic hype, which said that the social media and Google were a benign, magical thing that was a new kind of democracy. I simply said, well, that's sort of true, but also possibly there might be something a little less benign going on under the surface. They're sucking a lot of data out of you, fitting you into feedback loops, which simplifies your reactions to things. Again, the roof fell in. I've noticed that many of those people um, who were attacking me have now actually publicly admitted that they were patsies. They were completely used during that time by that wave of money that was coming out of Google and social media. And that people like me who were questioning it were sort of probably quite right. Um, so all I'm really saying is that there is a mainstream consensus now about everything. And if you and my job, which the BBC has tasked me to do, it's just simply to provoke people to pull back and say, hang on, this mainstream consensus is so rigid these days. Have you thought about looking at it this way? Have you thought about looking at the world that way? Because actually, in the face of that rigid mainstream consensus, because politics has dissolved into one thing, is a really useful thing. That is not a conspiracy theory in no way. And in none of my films have I alleged a conspiracy theory ever. Yeah. Yep, I agree with you. Um, I want to talk about music for a, for oh. a, uh, a bit, if that's okay. Um, you obviously in the films you you feature, obviously your sort of favourite artists that, that occur um, in quite a number of your films: Nine Inch Nails, Aphex Twin, um, along with a whole host of obscure and interesting other artists as well. Are you uh, very much a sort of music magpie, always searching out for strange new sounds to? drop into your films no i'm just like music i mean it really is as simple as that i just like music and, and i have 
Some people have areas of confidence. I mean, there are lots of areas that I'm not very confident in, like I'm not a very confident writer. Uh, I, I find that very, very difficult. But I am confident about my musical taste. Um, and it, it, all I know is I just have in my head lots and lots of music that I like. And it ranges across all sorts. Of, I mean, I'm very picky. You know, there are, there's lots of stuff by Nine Inch Nails that I don't like. Um, Ooh, but, what? No, I'm not telling you. <laughs> but there are lots of things that I do like and I just am very inspired by. I tend to like things that, that are, have a, I can only describe it as a modern romanticism. It's, it's, Nine Inch Nails is a very good example. He somehow manages to take noise and make it emotional. I can't explain it any more than that. He just does it. And other people I like do that. They, they, they really, Burial does that as well. I mean, I know it's a bit of a cliche that I like Burial, but he is a genius. It, it, it just some, and it captures that modern mood, which is, which is somehow raw, machine-like, but somehow suffused with deep feeling and deep yearning. And a sort of and a melancholy, which I think is very deep in our time, that the, the certainties of the past, there's, the certainty of individualism is declining. And I think yeah. people like Nine Inch Nails and Burial express that sense of loss and that sense of melancholy beautifully. Um, but in answer to your question, no, I just I don't search for music for the films. I just like music, and I listen to music all the time. And I will often in shops go up and ask people, ask them, what, what is it that you're playing? I don't bother to shout. I just go. And, ask them what it what is it because yeah. i'm just always intrigued um and then when i'm editing i and i want to create a i know that i'm beginning to create a mood for that particular part of the film i will bits of music will pop into my head and i'll try them out most often it won't work it just won't work but every now and then it does um and they tend to be you know like in in the middle of bitter lake i will put a david bowie song in because it's somehow grabbed that it expressed that mood that i was trying to capture a sort of yeah. a sort of a, a sad englishness lost in the lost in the darkness of a foreign country and i felt the bule brothers expressed that not in any way literal way it just did it got it yeah i remember it. i remember that there's one piece of it's quite dark ambient music that you use quite often in these films and i think you also used it in hypernormalization i cannot for the life of me find it (laughs) okay i know what you i know your the the thing i must tell you is that ever since i started working with massive attack we have done bits of music together um to uh, as to which we use to stitch together between the songs in the shows that, that we do and it's very much a collaborative process between me and robert and other members of the band above all with robert and um, increasingly, I've used bits of those. And, okay, I don't think Robert might be saying this. What I've discovered is that Massive Attack are not only a wonderful band in themselves, they're a great covers band. They really are. I can say to them, will you do a bit of music that sounds a bit like John Carpenter? Or do, what about this? And Or mixed with, or I can say, could it be John Carpenter mixed with, I don't know, um, uh, Dead Kennedys? Just, just, I'll try out things. And, 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 and it's just, and then, so I've got his sort of ser- a whole lot of files, which is why I've put Robert down in, in, in this series. And, and, and I think in um, hypernormalization as music, I will use quite a lot of that increasingly. That's a relief to me because it's, yeah, I've been trying to search it for... No, that's why you can't find it. Um, and, and, and you will often find that it's sort of reminiscent of, of something, mm. you know, but it isn't that. It's because it's basically, it's basically me saying to them, could it be a bit like that? 
And then they interpret it and it sort of echoes it a bit, but it isn't quite like that. It takes them to another dimension. I love doing it. Hmm. I read also that you use layers of uh, fan sound that you record yourself. Is that right? Yeah, just bits and bobs. And also sometimes off um, tapes uh, of new stuff, you know, suddenly there will be some strange noise that that uh, is at the end of some news piece of footage. I'll keep it and, and use it and, and sometimes play with it acoustically. Interesting. I was going to talk, yeah, so you, you collaborated with Massive Attack quite a lot and most recently on their mezzanine tour um yeah how did you how did you find the experience of creating content for a live audience in that context as opposed to a tv audience and would you like to do that sort of collaboration again well i like collaborating and i like working with them and i i very much liked the the, i mean the 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 mezzanine thing was very interesting because they wanted to do a 20th anniversary tour but as you know you there you've got to They've how many songs there are on Mezzanine? Sorry, eight or something like that. You, you needed more songs, and they didn't want to do other songs from other albums because that would mess up the concept. So I can't remember who came up with the idea, whether it was me or whether it was Robert. I'm not sure. Which is well, well since you've sampled a load of songs for those original songs in in Mezzanine, why don't you do versions of those songs that you sampled in between the other songs, if that makes sense? At which point, I had this wonderful opportunity to actually make films for lots of different songs from different sources done by Massive Attack. And that I really liked doing that. That was really good fun because there was real variety. We even did a version of um, Where Where Are All the Flowers Gone, um, sung by Liz Fraser, which they sampled. And that was beautiful. I found, a, I'm, I'm, you know, I could make a, a sort of really beautiful film out of that. What's the best gig you've ever been to? It's the best gig I've ever been to. God, I don't know. I've been to so- I mean, I spent... I spent most of my youth going to gig. I mean, I don't know. Can I think about that? I, I mean, there's so, so, I mean, as I said, I love music. So there's so, so many. It, depends how, it also depends how you define best because there's best music or there's the best experience because because you were with a group of friends or I don't know. I'll think about that and I'll tell you. Do you have a favourite record? No. Changes, changes minute, day by day, minute by minute. I mean, I would be... Absolutely, totally useless on Desert Island. I mean, not they ever asked me, but on Desert Island, because I change my mind all the time, literally, you know. Um, I don't know. I just literally am always changing. I mean, a piece of music I like two days ago, I'll think, mm, I don't like that. Are you sort of a big, as a music fan, are you into vinyl? Do you collect or are you? No, no. I'm not bothered by that yeah. thing. No. I mean, I, I'm not against it, but I, it's not really my area. Do you listen to music while you're searching the archives, or is that a very much a separate? No, you know, that's silly. That that's, that skews you. Because the, the the interesting thing, which which actually, if you ever very quickly learn, is that if you play music over any piece of film, the human brain will always look for a pattern, even if there isn't one there. It, it's absolutely fascinating. So no, you mustn't do that. It's wrong. No. There were. Um... Two things very recently that uh, came up that I'm sure you you'll definitely have seen um, that on social media uh, seem to you know people were saying oh I'm sure we'll see this in a future Adam Curtis film. Um, the first of those was the footage of the woman, the incredible footage of the woman live streaming her gym workout in Myanmar as the oh, yeah. military coup uh, unfolded behind her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People were accusing me of the Myanmar coup was part of a viral marketing. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, yeah. I think people thought it was a trailer for the films, wasn't it? Yes, lots, lots, lots of people. I got sent masses of them. Of course, I might have done one of them uh, anonymously. 
Uh, and the second was the the GameStop event, which um, thought, yeah, what did you think of that event, and what do you think it represents in terms of perhaps being a, you know, the, almost the ghosts of the internet's past as a sort of an anarchic and democratizing power re-emerging to, to take on the elite? Well, initially I thought that, uh, and then I thought, oh no, it's turning into yet another of these internet. How, do, how does one describe it? It gets more complicated because, first of all it was portrayed as this Robin Hood thing, the democratizing of the internet against the evil capitalists. And then uh, it got its, I did a bit of a little bit of research into this. It got more complicated because I looked up the Robin Hood people who were doing, where you do most of the trading, you can go and they portrayed themselves, which I'm sure is true is that they were two men who come out of the Occupy movement and they saw this as democratizing the stock market. But then I, read somewhere, uh, you'd have to check this, that that they also got their real profits out of selling on the information from the people who were doing the trading. And I thought, oh, it's just like social media. Do you remember when social media was this new democracy? But actually, they were also selling on the information or using the information they got out, the data out of you. Uh, at which point, and, th- and then what happened is suddenly... All sorts of conspiracy theories started to rise up that said, no, maybe the traders were actually the puppets of another set of hedge funds who were trying to destroy that hedge fund. At which point, and then the lefties piled in going, no, it's not revolutionary because all they're doing is, is wanting to trade cap in capitalism. So they're reinforcing capitalism. At which point I thought, this is typical of our time. It is the whole system eating itself. So what starts off as optimistic and, and, and revolutionary within about three days has become a doom laden, totally paranoid mess of people eating each other through suspicion. And I thought, yes, the problem is none of them have got a nice story about the future. They're all what it what it got possessed by is instead of trying to imagine a better world, it got possessed by people imagining what other people are doing to each other. Do you know what I mean? You spend your time imagining what other people are doing to you rather than actually having the confidence to imagine something better than this. And so I thought, huh, yes, another, another, you know, busted flush over two and a half days. The half-life is getting shorter and shorter, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you end up two and a half days later with no one actually being sure what the fuck it was all about. <laughs> Um, you mentioned your blog uh, a few minutes ago, uh, for, which you maintained for a number of years and published all sorts of interesting stories and random things that you found. What, why did you stop? And, and do you think you'll ever return to, I mean, you said you've answered it already, I guess, in terms of saying that you, you're not as confident a writer, but would you, can you imagine yourself ever writing a book, for example? Feeding the web beast is, is a terrible, terrible thing to do. Unless you want to be on show all the time. Look, and I don't, you know, I'm just not, I don't, want to be on social media i don't want to be watched all the time i know a lot of my friends who do and but it's quite exhausting and it requires a sort of self-consciousness that i get bored with after a while i like being a bit private and also yes writing i find writing more and if you actually analyze what i do i'm a very very functional writer it's there's nothing fancy in my writing at all and you, what you could argue is that what makes my films work, if they work, is that you, I counterpoint what is quite a baroque and, and wild visual sense with a quite calm voice. That, that, and actually, the, the, and that's why I thought the Loving Trap thing was clever, because it spotted that, that, that you, it, there's a calm voice anchoring it all down. 
and the and the interplay of those two things is maybe what makes it work. So in answer to your other question, that's why I would never be able to write a book, because actually the book would be so boring. Yeah. No, really, it would be incredibly boring because, you know, what what I try and do is with the pictures and the music, but mainly the pictures is take you into a world that I create. So you're coming into my world. You know, very. And this goes back to your question about conspiracy theory. I make it absolutely clear in the way I make it visually is that it's I'm creating this. This is my world. You know, I'm not trying to con you into thinking this is the BBC sort of super truth. It's my world. I'm saying, have you thought about seeing the world this way? I mean, if you don't like it, that's, I mean, in a way, job done. I mean, I don't personally like it when people don't disagree with me, but but it is sort of, that is the job done. And and you, you know it and you see it. So to write a sort of book, I just don't think I could do it. I mean, I get every now and then I get a publisher saying, would you like to write a book? And I say, I just don't see the point. I'd be throwing away 75% of what I'm good at, mm. and leaving you with a bunch of words. You know, my scripts are quite boring. Fair enough. Yeah, I would disagree gently, but um, but yeah, I can. I mean, no, no. I mean, the, the stories I tell you and the facts I tell you are hopefully interesting. But if you actually look at my scripts, they're very, very, very functional. They yeah. really are. They're, they're, they're there as a sort of, yeah, it's a, it's a calm counterpoint to a wild visual style yeah when you complete a project of this scale which has obviously taken up a, a huge amount of your time over the last few years do you then do you kick back for a while or are you always searching for and researching new stories and do you have a next project in mind already no i don't have a next project but i will go i will just go and, i mean you know that's where i come from. i come out of a journalistic tradition uh, and i just go and research stories i haven't I have in the back of my mind that a lot of the things that people are completely obsessed about at the moment may go very quickly. That the, above all, the obsession with modern, the magic of modern technology, that it may be soon seen quite soon. It won't go away, but it's quite mundane, quite banal, and possibly a large amount of it will have been seen as a total con. I mean, I, I, I've noticed there are people beginning to question within the advertising world whether this whole idea that Google can actually target people might in itself be a bit of a con and that the, the, the whole thing might just, it won't go away, but it will just become banal and we'll turn around and think, well, hang on, what else is there? Because it has actually, we've moved into that world and we've got lost in it. And I think maybe it's time to recapture, realise that other things outside there, which, uh, so my brain is tending that way, is let's forget that. It's, maybe it's gone. I did I did a, a web mold, you know, I'll watch over message, loving grace, a long time ago. It's time to move on. One of the things that was frustrating, actually, just as an aside, is that you talk a lot about um, Limonov and his book, and I and his book is out of print. It's really frustrating. I've you know, his, uh, it's I've got a copy. <laughs> well, it goes for about two hundred quid on eBay. <laughs> they should reprint it. I don't know. It's why really doing. good. It's me, Eddie. It's it's a great book. It's. Oh, well. it's <laughs> It's really good. Are there, were there a lot of stories that you, you threw out and all that didn't quite make the cut? Or... Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Oh, massive. Yeah. No, no. There are whole characters that were, were in films. I mean, in fact, actually, there was one whole film that went. No, really, I just, just, I mean, at one point, I wanted to make the whole thing 19 hours long. Um, <laughs> really did. Just because, just because, but I was wrong. So no, there were whole things that went. It must be great to have that, that freedom that the being on the iPlayer enables you to, to have to, to, broaden it out over this this time period it, that's why i do it yeah. it's, it's just immense freedom i have to, i mean i i obey all the bbc laws and the bbc rules 
but I have a freedom to just be more open and expansive. And audience, I don't think my colleagues get it yet. They really don't know. To make the iPlayer really something distinctive, you've got to develop a whole new way of making films. And no one's really quite conquered that yet, but it will come. And it'll be like those great big multi-part novels from the 19th century. And I don't mean, oh, it'll just be like The Sopranos. It'll feel different. It'll be halfway between a book and a film. Because people don't watch these like they watch films. They're, they're more like books. And, and also people stop and start and look things up on Wikipedia, which allows me not to have to explain everything, which is what old commentary used to be about. The, the old rule was that because they're only watching it once, you have to explain everything because even if only 10% needs explaining it, everyone has to be explained to, which was so irritating. Whereas my view is, is, is catch up. Or if you want to find out, just stop it and go and look it up on Wikipedia. Yeah, no, I was certainly doing that. I mean, just the things on... Like I forget the name now, but Operation Ice Worm or something. You know, I just had absolutely no idea about any of that. I mean, oh. I, I come away from your films often feeling more enlightened and frustrated at how little I knew about the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Adam. Really appreciate that. That was really interesting, fascinating. Thank you for taking the time. Pleasure. Oh, sure.